millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to Season 2, Episode 23 of They Walk Among Us, a podcast dedicated to UK true crime. This is part one of a two-part story. Listener caution is advised as this episode contains adult themes and descriptions that some listeners may find distressing. Just another scotch, then he would show them a trick he had learnt in prison. Donald Hall asked for a piece of string and his brother Roy went into the kitchen to get him some. The piece of cord he retrieved had been cut from the waist pull of a pair of pyjama trousers. Donald told his audience of two that he could tie someone up securely using only a six-inch length of cord. He would need an assistant. His brother was eager to volunteer. First, he cut the cord into two three-inch lengths. Taking off his shoes and socks, he asked his helper to tie his big toes together. Roy obliged. Donald then lay on his front and brought his legs up so his heels were touching his back. With his arms behind him, he then instructed his older brother to tie his thumbs together over his legs. It was done. See, you can't get out of it, Donald said triumphantly, as a smile spread across his face. As soon as his brother Roy and his friend Michael Kitter would untie him, Donald would try to convince the pair to let him join them on their next jewellery heist but he wasn't going to be untied. Instead of unpicking the knots, Roy walked into the bathroom. Donald asked Michael to untie him, but Michael didn't respond. Roy returned with some cotton wool soaked in chloroform and pressed it over his brother's nostrils. Donald struggled as much as he could to free himself, but the knots were too tight. After a few seconds, he was still. Roy and Michael carried Donald upstairs to the bathroom where a hot bath had been running. Picking up his limp body, the pair threw Donald in the tub. To ensure his brother couldn't lift his head above the water, Roy held it under for a moment as the last of the air left Donald's lungs. As Roy and Michael stepped back from the bathtub, they patiently waited. After five minutes, Donald's body bobbed to the surface. This wasn't the first time Roy Fontaine had killed someone. Roy Fontaine, Roy Hall, Archibald Thompson Hall, Roy Salvanon and Roy Thompson Hall were names and aliases used by the same man, but throughout this podcast, we will simply refer to him as Roy Fontaine or Roy Hall. Part 1. Roy Fontaine the Thief Born into a working-class area of Glasgow in 1924, 
Roy Hall was the apple of his mother's eye. Roy was 17 when his brother Donald was born, and by this time he was used to getting his own way. Unenthusiastic about school, he had left when he was 15. He was too young to sign up and join the army, but he acquired a position helping his mother's friend Mrs Anne Phillips stocking the shelves in her shop. Mrs Phillips in her early 30s was over twice Roy's age, but even so, he developed a crush on the divorcee and believed she reciprocated his feelings. The more time they spent together, the more he saw the signs, her long looks, lingering as she brushed past him. According to Roy Hall, on his 16th birthday, she bought him a smart jacket and took him out for dinner in a high-class restaurant. In the middle of dinner, Mrs. Phillips dropped her napkin and she went down to retrieve it. She put her hand on his crotch. They returned to Anne's house and Roy spent the night. When he arrived home the next day, his father was furious due to the new suit jacket Roy was wearing. Roy's father was concerned about the rumours it would create, but Roy didn't care. He kept the blazer and continued to see Mrs. Phillips. Despite the onset of World War II, Mrs. Phillips' shop saw a significant amount of customers and Roy continued working there. While stocking the shelves one day, Roy noticed his employer placing a cloth over the contents of a drawer before closing it. His curiosity got the better of him, and Roy later opened the drawer to see what Mrs. Phillips was hiding. It was a drawer full of five and ten pound notes. Unable to help himself, he started taking five pounds here, ten pounds there, and in 1940 the value of those notes was much greater than it is today. The money afforded Roy to experience the finer things in life, the best restaurants and nicest clothes, but if he continued to take money from Mrs. Phillips he would be found out, so he began stealing from other homes and shops in the area. Slipping in and out of open windows and unlocked doors, he took only cash and jewellery. He never left a mess, and often the thefts weren't noticed for days, sometimes weeks after he'd paid a visit. Soon the whole family would leave Glasgow. Roy's father had fought in the First World War and at 42 he didn't believe he would be called up again, but he was. While he wouldn't be serving on the front line, he would be needed at the barracks in Catterick, Yorkshire. The family sold their home before the move and just like Glasgow, Roy treated the army base as his playground. He listened to conversations and took mental notes to determine when his fellow residents at the barracks would be out of the house. Once the homeowners were away, he would then creep inside and steal anything of value that might go undetected. According to Roy, arrogant as ever, he had animal magnetism and good looks, so wasn't short of female company. Despite the young man becoming more acquainted with the opposite sex, his family wouldn't remain at the base for long. Roy had been collecting Nazi memorabilia brought back to the UK by soldiers who had been fighting in the war which he proudly displayed in his room. One day Roy was paid a visit by officers on the base. Upon discovering the memorabilia, the officers asked Roy if he admired Hitler, and in response, he said he thought Hitler had done a good job in stabilising Germany. A day after the encounter, Mr Hall received his discharge from the army. The reason given was apparently his age. His son was convinced it was because of the incident the previous day. Roy claimed to have seen his mother kissing a major while at Catterick Barracks. When the family returned to Glasgow's West End, Roy was convinced the child his mother was carrying was not his father's. With their house sold, they shared a rented apartment with a young Polish freedom fighter called Captain Jakubowski. 17-year-old Roy was intrigued by their new house guest, believing him to be of a higher social class. As he approached adulthood, Roy Hall had been trying to emulate the wealthy upper class, attempting to shed his Glaswegian accent and disguise his working class beginnings. He used the money he had stolen to buy the most expensive clothes, and when Roy ate in the most elegant restaurants, he would observe the mannerisms and etiquette of his fellow diners. He was spending more and more time with Captain Jakubowski, visiting art galleries and museums, but when the captain complained to Roy's mother Marion that his bed was too uncomfortable, she suggested he share the double pull-out mattress with Roy. That night, their relationship turned from platonic to sexual. 
Roy's mother took little interest in her son's day-to-day activities, but his father began to get suspicious and was even more baffled by how Roy got his money. When asked, Roy was elusive about his income, explaining that he simply had a knack for making a profit with the items he bought and sold. To provide him with a steady income, his father suggested that perhaps Roy get a job at the post office. Roy didn't want to work for a living. He coveted jewels and antiques, but he had no desire to work to get them. Instead, he had conceived of a scam which would gain him access to the wealthiest homes in Glasgow. He would go to an estate agent dressed in the most respectable clothing and explain that he was the son of an Indian diplomat. He would claim that his father was due to return to Scotland and had entrusted him to find the finest home possible. While being on a tour of the property with the estate agent, Roy would take a mental note of the doors, the locks, the bolts, jewellery boxes and antiques. After the sales pitch had finished and he absorbed the information for later use, he feigned interest in the property to the owner. As they sat down to iron out the finer details, he would claim that he would need to come back with a family member to get their permission before the deal went ahead. When the seller suggested a date, he would decline and suggest another. Through this game of cat and mouse, he was able to establish when the home would be empty and relieve the owners of their small valuables. He played this con over and over again before moving on to Edinburgh, again visiting local estate agents and finding a treasure trove of valuables. On the occasions when the jewellery was too unique to be sold in Scotland, Roy would travel down to Hatton Garden in London to ensure the jewellery wouldn't be recognised. While there, he used some of the money he obtained from selling people's treasured possessions and heirlooms to spend nights at five-star hotels. He shopped in Selfridges and visited the Turkish baths. By the time he returned to Glasgow, he'd thought his estate agent's scam was too risky. So after seeing an advert for a receptionist at a four-star hotel, he applied. His idea was he could soak up more mannerisms of the wealthy while stealing a small amount of jewellery and cash from their room while they were out. He soon tired of working, so he gave up the job and his room at the hotel to return home. As World War II was in full swing, Roy suddenly decided he should do his bit, and so he joined the Navy. Roy Hall was known to embellish much of what he said, but according to him, the Navy promptly found out about his stay at the army base and his collection of Nazi memorabilia. His position in the Navy lasted for less than a week before he headed home to Glasgow. Blaming the Navy for his return to crime, he was quoted as saying, If they wouldn't give me a suitable job, then I would create my own. I robbed houses all over the city. One evening while drinking at a local bar, Roy claimed he was approached by Vic Oliver, the actor and radio comedian who would later become Winston Churchill's son-in-law. When asked his name, Roy lied and told Vic his name was Roy Fontaine. According to Roy, the two swiftly started an affair. On weekends, he was invited to stay in London with Vic, where he was introduced to secret sex parties held for rich and powerful men. Roy seized this opportunity with both hands, stealing jewellery and obtaining addresses of more wealthy homeowners. After the affair had run its course, he pondered his next steps in Glasgow, and with the money he made from stealing, he decided he would open up a second-hand shop. While running the shop, he had a visit from a woman called Esther Henry, who ran a respected antiques business. Esther would again make an appearance in Roy's life, but for now, Roy charmed her, and gave yet another false name, Roy Salvanon. The shop was doing well and could have been a legitimate business, but Roy became increasingly less interested, leaving the day-to-day running of the shop to his mother. Restless and again looking for risky ways to make money, Roy couldn't help himself. A wealthy customer let slip that they were going away to celebrate their 25th wedding anniversary. This meant the couple's home would be empty, and Roy knew that 25 years was a silver anniversary. Aware of their address, he crept into the house, stealing the couple's unwrapped gifts which he later sold in London. Roy was never suspected, and the couple continued to do business with the very man that burgled their home. In 1945, the war was over and optimism filled the air. To celebrate, Roy broke into a house in Perth 
stole a set of jade and gold earrings with a matching necklace, and off he went to London to sell the goods. He showed staff behind the counter what he was looking to sell. As they examined the jewellery, they were taking their time. In fact, one member of staff disappeared into a back room. The atmosphere was tense, but Roy, greedy as ever, didn't want to leave empty-handed. He stood there, waiting until the silence was broken by a bell above the entrance. A well-dressed man in a bowler hat walked past the counter and into the back room where the second shop assistant had been for quite some time. The first to emerge was the man in the bowler hat. He locked eyes with Roy and walked directly towards him. Roy had avoided this dreaded moment throughout the six years of stealing from the upper class. He was caught and he knew it before the man even uttered the words, I'm a police officer from West End Central. The young Roy, used to the high life, stuck out like a sore thumb in the seven days he was confined to Wormwood Scrubs Prison in Hammersmith. His court date came, but prosecutors offered no evidence, as there were two Scottish officers waiting to take him into custody on more severe charges. The two officers planned to escort Roy by train from London Euston to Glasgow. A simple job, as this young man didn't have a lengthy criminal past or a history of violence. No need for handcuffs just a polite warning at the start of the trip to behave himself. As the train edged towards Carlisle Station, their prisoner requested a toilet break. As Roy made his way to his assigned cabin, the train had come to a halt at the station. The slim corridor was filled with new passengers trying to move in every direction to get a spare seat. Roy caught a glimpse of one of the officers looking panicked and trying to make his way through the crowd. Roy then felt a gust of air from an open door and seized his chance to escape. As the train pulled away, the officers were stuck amongst the crowds of passengers, so were unable to get to the door in time and retrieve their prisoner. Roy had escaped, but he had no money, no contacts in Carlisle, and Glasgow was 96 miles away. Roy claims to have jogged most of the night, only stopping once in a nearby church. He says he hitched a ride from Lanarkshire to Glasgow, but decided to avoid his parents' house as he knew that's the first place police would look. After a few days, his mother was itching to see him, so the friend he was staying with arranged a meeting. But it was here where the police once again arrested Roy, along with his mother. Marion Hall was sentenced to 28 days in prison, and her son received 18 months, serving his time in Barlini Jail. After serving a year, Roy was released early and decided to move to London wanting to leave Glasgow firmly behind him. He got in touch with a wealthy old contact of his and according to Roy undertook a job as a nude waiter at some upper class sex parties. These parties were the types of gatherings Roy had attended as a guest only a few years before. Sexual favours were part and parcel of his duties and for Roy, it was a perfect opportunity to get information from his clients about their trips out of town. His new scam would involve travelling to the suburbs on weekdays to relieve rich homeowners of their cash and jewellery. This new venture didn't last long, and a year after his release, he was again arrested. This time he received two years in prison after the court took into account a total of 50 burglaries he was said to have committed. Roy was to serve his sentence at HMP Wandsworth in southwest London. His time in Barlini Prison had not been pleasant, however he found life at Wandsworth a breeze in comparison. While there, he met John Wooten who would become a lifelong friend, and he also became acquainted with a man called Johnny Collins. Johnny was released months before Roy, so his new friend sent him some whiskey and tin fruit for Christmas. When Roy was let out, Johnny Collins was waiting at the gates for him and the pair were eager to get started on some smash-and-grab jewellery heists. They had enlisted the help of driver Dave Perry and their first job together was to rob the London Goldsmith Company. Roy had cased out the shop earlier and knew what items of jewellery they should steal. That evening, Dave Perry pulled up outside and Johnny and Roy got out of the car. Armed with a claw hammer, Johnny began to smash the glass until it broke into a million shattered pieces. Roy eagerly scooped up the jewellery and in a matter of seconds the job was done. 
they hopped back in the car and made the journey to a pub whose landlord had agreed they could conduct their business from his spare room. For the next two years, the gang carried out heists throughout London and the surrounding suburbs. They were used to the high life, and though they didn't socialise with each other, they enjoyed spending their profits frivolously. Especially Johnny, who had a preference for drinking and gambling away his portion of the takings. There would always come a point when funds began to get low, and they would need to do another job. However, one evening, before they were due to carry out another burglary, an acquaintance of Dave Perry's had been arrested and divulged information about him on a job they had done together. Concerned Dave Perry might be arrested and tell the police everything, Roy and Johnny abandoned the job, and instead, Roy suggested the two of them go to Glasgow, as he knew of a handful of small jewellers they could rob. The pair drove north, but when they got to Glasgow, they realised the street was being patrolled at night by a police officer on horseback. They parked the car a couple of streets away, where they found a shortcut through a warehouse. The height and width of the entrance was wide enough to accommodate a car, but not tall enough to be accessed by a policeman and his horse. As they walked up the street with hammers in their hands and looped bags at the ready, they silently waited until the clip-clop of hooves grew faint and the officer was out of view. Now was their chance. With a hammer in each hand, Johnny smashed the glass. A second after the glass shattered, the sound of hooves sped up. Roy scooped up the jewels and the pair ran towards the getaway car with an officer in hot pursuit. By the time they made it back to the vehicle, police were waiting for them. Someone who knew of their plans had let slip to the police, so the pair found themselves back in Wandsworth Prison, with Johnny Collins receiving four years and Roy Fontaine three. Roy decided to spend his second visit to Wandsworth more wisely this time. He read about antiques and etiquette. He ironed out the last twangs of his Glaswegian accent and managed to get hold of a book about how to be a butler. Roy served his full sentence and was released in the spring of 1952. Just as he always had done, he returned to his parents' home and not long after picked up where he left off, robbing houses when the fancy took him. A few months into his stay, Roy's mother told him she was leaving his father. Marion had secured a housekeeping job for Mrs Dunsmuir at Kilbride Castle in Perthshire and lodgings were included. Roy always had a preference for his mother, she never asked questions, so it wasn't long before he travelled north to see her. During his time there, he charmed and flattered Mrs Dunsmuir and she offered him a job serving meals and being a chauffeur. But Roy couldn't stop himself. From day one, he was making notes of the desirable items that would fetch the biggest profit, but he held off stealing anything as a friend he'd made during his second stint in prison, John Wooten, came to visit. Mrs Dunsmuir found John to be pleasant and amenable. Not wise to Royal John's criminal background, she offered John a position working amongst the household staff. Roy began a relationship with an au pair and also noticed his mother and his friend John were becoming romantically involved. Just like Roy's previous jobs, he would grow bored and sabotage his position. One morning, Mrs Dunsmuir stood stunned at her bedroom door when she caught sight of Roy having sex with the au pair who was bent over her bed. Understandably, Roy was dismissed with immediate effect. To Roy, it was only a minor inconvenience. He had an old friend create a fake glowing reference and he scoured the wanted ads in newspapers and magazines. It was only a matter of weeks before he gained employment for the Warren Connell family in Clydeside. Old money in a huge home, the family employed eight other members of staff including three gardeners. Settled in his new role as a butler, Roy gained enough trust to be left in charge of the house during the summer while the Warren Connells and their remaining staff were on holiday. He behaved for the first few days until temptation got the better of him. An ornate sealed envelope with gold writing arrived in the post. The stamp on it said St James Palace. Roy steamed the envelope open. The letter inside read, I am commanded by Her Majesty the Queen to invite you to a royal garden party at the Palace of Hoddyrood House in Edinburgh. We couldn't pass up this opportunity to mingle with royalty, so on the day of the garden party, he dressed in a hired suit, driving his employer's Bentley and clutching a dozen red roses. He popped into his old friend Esther Henry's antique shop, presenting her with the bouquet. Again, unable to help himself, 
Roy bragged about where he was going. The invitation got him into the party without a hitch, but his attendance there put him on the authorities' radar. A few days later, police turned up at the home of the Warren Connells, asking for Roy Fontaine. They wanted to question him about a robbery nearby in which a safe had been blown open and its contents stolen. Roy pleaded ignorance and the police left. After the lady of the house returned, the police again phoned to let her know a man in her employment was a career criminal. Roy had been listening via another telephone in the house and gently put down the receiver so as to not alert them he was eavesdropping. Serving dinner was an awkward affair and after they had eaten, Mrs Warren Connell asked Roy about his time in prison. He confessed he had spent time in jail after falling in with the wrong crowd. He assured her that he wasn't there to steal anything as he had turned over a new leaf. Mrs Warren Connell believed it was her Christian duty to give him another chance, so he was permitted to stay carrying on his job as usual. Unfortunately for Roy, news travels fast. When he heard the gardener gossiping about his criminal past, he knew his plan to get worthless replicas made of his boss's jewellery was now too risky, so Roy explained to the Warren Connells that he would be leaving. By this time his mother and John had moved to Paddington in London, but Roy summoned John back to Scotland for a new job. In Esther Henry's antique shop, there had been a large locked black metal tin that always fascinated Roy. Though he didn't know exactly what was inside, it had to contain valuables, as she put it in a safe every night. The plan was simple. John would go to a phone box across the street and call Esther to distract her. Roy would then sneak into an adjoining office, get the keys that were hanging on a hook on the wall, open the mysterious black metal tin, replace the contents with phone books that he had brought with him, and then steal the valuables. It was a risky plan considering the victim of the crime was practically in the same room and only distracted by a phone call. But it worked. From Scotland they fled with their haul and headed back to John and Marion's home in London. Partway through the journey in Carlisle, they split their haul which turned out to be over 120 pieces of high quality jewellery along with some cash mainly in foreign currency. Roy caught the train for the rest of the journey and John remained in his car. Their reasoning behind the split was that if one of them got caught by police, the other would still have their share. As they were dealing in stolen goods, the street price for jewellery would be much lower, but Roy estimated the value of the items to be close to £100,000. Negotiating with the jeweller the pair had dealt with during their smash and grab spree years before, they obtained the reasonable sum of £40,000 for 80 pieces of jewellery. The year was 1953, and that would be worth over £1 million in today's money. It took a day for Esther Henry to realise the key to her black box was missing, and after she hired a locksmith to pick the lock, she discovered the jewellery had been stolen too. Although Roy and John had successfully robbed the antique shop and managed to sell the jewellery, Esther knew what Roy looked like. Despite giving her a false name and sticking with it for all these years, it wouldn't take police long to figure out that Roy Salanon, Roy Hall and Roy Fontaine were the same person. Roy and John knew staying in London was far too risky, so they packed up and went to the seaside, leaving Marion alone in Paddington. Torquay was their destination of choice. Instead of laying low, they hid in plain sight. They chose a luxury five-star hotel and that evening joined in with the festivities. According to Roy, a charity fundraiser was being held in the ballroom. Ever the extrovert, he trumped his friend's gesture of overbidding on a fruit basket then donating it back to the auction by winning two bottles of champagne and having them sent across the table to the mayor. They were beckoned over to join the table and Roy and John even shared a drink with Torquay's chief of police. After a few days, Roy's mother Marion joined them. She spent her time with John, doing the things that most tourists do, and John told Roy he was out, insisting he wanted to settle down with Marion and leave his life of crime behind him. John asked Roy if he would buy his share of the remaining 40 pieces of jewellery so he could move on and start a new life with Roy's mother. Roy gave John the money, and the two parted ways. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theatres, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... 
Alright, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. This episode of They Walk Among Us is brought to you in association with Centair. Ever entered a seemingly perfect space only to feel like something was missing? That's where Centair comes in. With over three decades of experience, Centair leads the scent marketing industry, scenting resorts, retail outlets, event spaces and more, partnering with major brands like Westin Hotels and Snap Fitness. Chances are you've already encountered their fragrances firsthand. And now Centair is offering you a luxury fragrance experience in the comfort of your home. Visit Centair.com to explore their online store and infuse your spaces with unforgettable scents. Centair diffusers are sleek and fill your space with vivid fragrance for up to 300 hours. And the Centair app lets you schedule your fragrance and control your intensity right from your phone. What's more, all of Centair's more than 60 fragrances are phthalate-free, cruelty-free, safe for families and EcoVad is certified sustainable. Differentiate your space with scent. Try luxury home fragrance trusted by the pros by going to centair.com and using promo code Among Us for an extra 25% off your first order. That's promo code Among Us for an extra 25% off your first order at centair.com. Amongst the items Roy and John stole, there was a matching jade necklace and earring set. It was reported in the Guardian newspaper during March 1953 that the jewellery could have been part of the Hungarian crown jewels, but Roy was utterly oblivious to their importance. Believing the heat was off, he packed away his takings in a suitcase and travelled back to London, where he asked an old friend Johnny Collins to put the case in storage. He then went about his business, spending money on luxury items including a brand new Jaguar car. He hadn't been back in London for long when John contacted him, stressing that he urgently needed to speak to him, but it was too risky to talk over the phone. Roy headed off to see his mother and John, but as soon as he arrived, he began to feel uneasy. After their conversation, Roy was itching to get back to London, so hopped in his car and started the engine. But before he could make his getaway, the vehicle was surrounded by police cars. Once Roy and John were in police custody... They were offered a deal if they both pled guilty. Marion wouldn't be prosecuted and John would be charged on the less account of receiving stolen property. Despite their plea, Roy was sentenced to three years but John received four. The pair were sent to Barlini Prison, though this was only a temporary measure as authorities planned to move them to Peterhead a few months later, which had a far worse reputation. Roy was saved from the transfer at the last minute after being offered a much-coveted position in the library. However, John was not so lucky and got transferred. Roy's life in prison was peppered with visits from Esther Henry, as she still wanted her jewellery back, along with anything Roy and John had also taken. Roy used her desperation to retrieve the missing property to his advantage, often calling on her to visit whenever he needed a break from the monotony of prison life. If he wanted anything, he would call her. Esther believed her small prison purchases for Roy would be worth it if she could convince him to give her her jewellery back. 
Upon his release a few years later, Roy visited Johnny Collins in London to retrieve the suitcase he had left with him before his arrest. He spent the night drinking and noticed a young woman alone, so offered to buy her a drink. She began talking to him about her job and Roy realised he could be onto his next scam already. It transpired the young woman was a bookkeeper for two wealthy alcoholic publicans who ran a pub called the Montague Arms. She continued to divulge more information that the owners had a safe with jewellery and perhaps money inside. Roy's mind was made up. Though he didn't know how to blow safes, he knew someone in Scotland that did. Roy travelled north to bring safe blower Ambrose Carr back to Slough where the bar was located. They hired a couple of rooms in the guest house across the street to take notes of the publican's routines. They visited the bar and obtained a layout of the building, made small talk with the regulars and simply tried to fit in. A huge Great Dane padded between the customer's legs all day long and Roy took it upon himself to make friends with the dog, secretly feeding him slithers of raw meat under the table. The pair were eager to get started and just as they were getting itchy feet, a perfect chance came when one night the owners had got steaming drunk. Roy and Ambrose turned up at the Montague Arms in the early hours of the morning. Getting in was easy, but the pair were met by the owner's humongous dog. Bearing its teeth, Roy offered the animal some meat, which he gladly accepted. He led it outside so it could devour a bag of steak he had brought with him. The owner's bedroom could be seen from the room where the safe was located. They kept an eye out waiting for a light to turn on, but saw nothing as they passed the bedroom. They gathered as many towels and beer mats as they could wrap around the safe, hoping to shield the sound as much as possible for when the blast came. Boom, the safe was blown. The pair looked for the owner's bedroom light to go on, but they saw nothing. Countless banknotes could be seen through the moving smoke, so the pair filled their bags and fled back to their guest house to clean up and count their haul. £29,000 in cash and some more jewellery. At first they agreed on a 50-50 split, but Ambrose just wanted to get back to Scotland so sold his jewellery to Roy cheaply. Again Roy was alone, but almost instantly he began planning his next robbery. History repeated itself, and after Roy had been out drinking one night, he got talking to a young au pair that said her employers had a jewellery box. Discovering the address, he stole the box and even had the audacity to approach Esther Henry's son in Scotland to see if he wanted to buy the jewellery. Not surprisingly, this offer was refused. Roy was reported to the police who promptly turned up at his hotel room. He was questioned for hours, but denied everything. The police couldn't find the stolen items, so they had no other option but to let him go. Roy felt he needed a break, so he decided to spend two weeks in the Mediterranean. This was followed by a visit to Paris, and all this travelling inspired his next outlandish scheme. He was going to pose as his new alias, the Sheik, Mutlak Medina. He first purchased an outfit from a theatre shop, and then darkened his skin with iodine, which is often used in hospitals as a disinfectant. When applied to the skin, it looks orange, but it was likely Roy's sheer confidence that convinced his victims. Roy had started sowing the seeds of the Sheik's existence. A few weeks earlier, to prove his authenticity, calls from financial institutions flooded a local four-star hotel and staff were impatiently awaiting his arrival. The sheik pulled up in a chauffeur-driven Rolls-Royce and 12 leather suitcases followed behind him. He stayed in the hotel for around five days before asking staff to reserve him a suite at the Dorchester, a luxury hotel in Park Lane, London that still operates to this day. Spending a few days in his suite, he used the time to make outlandish demands from the staff, making sure they got used to the sheik's whims. On the third day at the hotel, he requested a tray of jewellery to pick out a gift for his girlfriend back home. Staff did as he requested, bringing the tray to his room, but he didn't like the jewellery on offer, demanding a new selection from a more upmarket jeweller in Hatton Garden. Eager to please their affluent guest, Staff did as requested and within half an hour a new tray of jewels were brought to his suite. This time the sheik wasn't in his living quarters, but a tap could be heard running in the bathroom. The bathroom door was ajar as steam escaped. Hotel staff passed the jewellery pads one by one to an outstretched hand, poking from behind the door and they waited for a response. 
After half an hour of the tap still running and no word from their guest, staff entered the bathroom. The sheik's robe laid on the floor, but he was nowhere to be seen. With his skin still stained by the iodine, Roy had changed into his everyday clothing and left the suite via a second exit, fleeing the hotel through a side entrance. Once home, he tipped out the contents of his briefcase. In his estimation, the jewellery was worth at least £300,000, but despite their value, he wasn't satisfied. He continued to steal from jewellers, memorising the valuables in their window displays and paying for exact replicas to be made. He would then go into the shop and swap the real piece with a replica. But it would neither be the jewellery forgeries nor the significant theft from the Dorchester Hotel that would lead to Roy's arrest. In 1956, Roy Fontaine was arrested in connection with the robbery of the Montague Arms and another establishment. After his flat was searched, a revolver was discovered and this was added to the list of charges. Roy was sentenced to 10 years for each robbery and 5 years for the possession of a firearm. The robbery charges would be served concurrently, making the 15-year sentence a big leap from the 2 or 3 years he had served previously. Roy began his term at Wandsworth but believed the sentence did not fit the crimes and he was often belligerent when addressing prison staff. On one occasion, he defiantly refused to address a doctor who examined him as Sir and within three days he was packed off to a stricter prison with a far worse reputation, Parkhurst on the Isle of Wight. After two and a half years, Roy and a fellow inmate attempted an escape, but their handiwork was discovered before they got out. The incident would have caused embarrassment to the high-security prison, so Roy was moved to Nottingham. He found his time there easier, and his mother and John visited him every two weeks. John even managed to sneak in some whiskey and tinned salmon. While he was incarcerated, Roy was permitted to attend his father's funeral in Scotland and for two days after the service, he was granted leave to deal with the family's inheritance. 50% was left to Roy and the other 50 to his brother Donald. Despite this, Roy insisted on entering his father's home only with his mother and Donald was sent to the pub. He scoured the home for mementos and things of value before returning to the prison. Along with the usual contraband he kept hidden, one day Roy returned to his cell to find a ginger kitten left as a gift from a maintenance worker. He kept the cat with him until his release in March 1963, just seven years since he was initially sentenced. Roy and his cat Whiskey went to live with his mother Marion, and later that month, after 12 years together, Marion and John were married. After the ceremony, Roy searched through copies of Tatler, the Times and the Lady to find employment as a butler. He would move from one position to another, stealing the odd item here and there before copying the house keys and coming back months later to rob his previous employers. One employer's insurance company found out Roy Fontaine was not who he said he was and he was immediately escorted off the property. After treating himself to a week in a hotel and a different sex worker every night, he went back to his flat in London. In the early morning, police busted down the door and he was arrested for stealing from two jewellers. Though he didn't confess, there was enough evidence to sentence Roy to 10 years in jail. Blunderstone Prison in Suffolk was now his new home, but not for long. Roy Fontaine and two fellow inmates escaped through vents above the kitchen. There were many breakouts from Blunderstone in the 1960s and it became such an issue that it eventually led to a home office inquiry. One of the three was apprehended, but Roy and his fellow escapee George made it to Scotland. On their travels, the pair got into a car accident after a teenage drunk driver ran into the back of their beetle. It drew a crowd, but Roy faked a chest injury, and George accosted a passing taxi to take him to hospital. After a few miles, the taxi was stopped by a police car. George was taken to the police station for fleeing the scene of a crime, and Roy was taken to the hospital with a police escort. It wasn't long before they found out who the men were. A police officer was waiting outside his room, but Roy took this opportunity to escape out the window, landing in some flower beds and running as fast as he possibly could. He hid between two refuse bins, covering himself in large pieces of rubbish and cardboard until he felt safe enough to call a friend to collect him a few hours later. He left Scotland behind and returned to London. 
While in London, Roy met a young woman called Margaret, who was 20 years his junior. She had left home in Dublin as she was unmarried and two months pregnant. They moved in together near Regent Street. Roy told Margaret that he was a businessman, and much like his mother Marion, she never questioned him. When Roy went out to commit his crimes, he would say he was leaving to do business. After a big heist in London, he left the capital, fleeing to Eastbourne with Margaret. They rented a farmhouse and presented themselves as Roy and Margaret Phillips. Their landlady lived in a caravan at the end of their garden, but Roy sensed she had money. And one night when she was out drinking a nightcap with her new tenants, Roy slipped out and searched the caravan for bank statements. She wasn't rich, but she had money, and now Roy was on a mission to take it. He finally came clean to Margaret, confessing he was a wanted criminal. She didn't care. She just wanted to be with the man she loved. At the start of December, Margaret gave birth to her daughter Caroline and Roy's scam on his soon-to-be ex-landlady was almost complete. He'd convinced her that he'd found land to buy at a bargain price. One night after one too many whiskies before bed, the landlady left a signed cheque on the table, but she neglected to put in an amount. Roy filled in £12,000, leaving enough money for the old lady to get by and likely not realise the deception until weeks later. Roy and Margaret were on the run again, this time spending Christmas in Wales. Roy explained that this wasn't a very good life for baby Caroline and suggested to Margaret that her child spend a few months with some very good friends of his. Surprisingly, Margaret agreed and travelled to Western Supermare with Roy. Only three days later, and after two years on the run, Roy Fontaine was again apprehended. Roy had fake documents which showed his name as Roy Phillips, but his fingerprints and arrest record gave him away. Another five years were added to his remaining sentence, though as it was to be served concurrently with the eight years he had left, it made little difference. Margaret was released without charge, but was alone until Roy called his mother and John to collect her. After being shuffled around a number of prisons, Roy ended up in the place he feared the most, Parkhurst. Margaret, John and his mother would all travel to the Isle of Wight to visit him, but after a time, Margaret's letters and visits became less frequent, until one day she broke the news she was getting married and moving to Canada. Not long after he was transferred to prison, it was here Roy fell in love for the first time. Roy spent almost every day in the company of fellow inmate David Bernard. When Roy was granted parole, he debated whether he wanted to accept it. Roy and David agreed Roy would leave and start a legitimate life for the couple, ready for when David was released. They spoke about setting up a club or a pub and leaving their criminal past behind them. Roy was released directly into a prison hostel in Preston, Lancashire. His mother and John soon moved and were only 12 miles away. Under the watchful eye of staff and his probation officer, Roy was to accept a job they had found him as a porter in Whittingham Hospital. On his first day, he met a cook, Mary Coggle. Almost immediately, she made Roy aware of her preference for criminals. That same day, they had sex in the cleaning cupboard but Mary wasn't to know that one day a new lover would kill her. Please tune in next time to hear part two, Roy Fontaine, the murderer. Thank you for listening and special thanks to our Patreon supporters. For more information, please visit theywalkamonguspodcast.com. To support They Walk Among Us and receive ad-free content and other extras, head to patreon.com forward slash theywalkamonguspodcast. Please don't forget to rate, review and subscribe on iTunes or your favourite podcast provider. You can follow us on Twitter at TWAU underscore podcast or follow us on Instagram and Facebook under They Walk Among Us podcast.
Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewellery that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. eBay gets it. So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love and be confident that every inch, stitch, sole and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.